This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, from the jump here, I just got to be honest, I'm not much of an audiophile, and I'm certainly not a audio engineer. I got some sort of weird feedback coming in my headphones, and so hopefully, fingers crossed, you're not getting that there on your side, but you know what? We're just going to do what we can, and we're going to push through, so if you get some weird feedback, just just... No, be comfortable with the fact that I will probably figure this out at some point, but I'm too stupid to do it before I recorded this episode. So launching into today's podcast called Changing American Values, Changing American Values. Okay. So I named it this for a couple of different reasons. The first thing is the obvious, which is that values are changing in America. Uh, Americans are changing their values, the things that they hold dear and sacred, right? But the second reason is because this change I feel like is being forced, that there is a forced change that is causing these American values to be shifted. And I think we see evidence of both of those things in a recent Wall Street Journal NBC poll that was released. uh, And the poll was done in August of 2019, but it was basically looking at the different trends in terms of what's happening in the United States and how people are viewing things from different backgrounds, but more specifically different groups. So it was looking at Gen Z, it was looking at Gen X, uh, millennials. I didn't exactly say that in order, but you know, the youngest would be Gen Z. And then we got me, the millennials. Then we've got, you know, your Gen Xers, you got your baby boomers, you got stuff like that. And kind of looked at a lot of the things therein. So what I want to do is I actually want to read from the NBCnews.com report on this poll. And then I'm going to be coming kind of in and out on that to kind of give you my opinion and on a few different things. And it starts out pretty basic in a lot of different areas, but then we start getting into the meat of it down uh, towards the end. And if you are not driving and you can safely do so, you can go to the episode showed the show notes in this episode rather, and you can click on the link and just follow along with me. But here we go into the article. The political and cultural upheaval of the last four years has divided the country on ever hardening partisan and generational lines, but one feeling unites Americans as much as it did before the 2016 election. They're still angry and still unsettled about the future. The latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll finds that despite Americans' overall satisfaction with the state of the U.S. economy and their own personal finances, a majority say they are angry at the nation's political and financial establishment, anxious about its economic future, and pessimistic about the country they're leaving for the next generation. Four years ago, we uncovered a deep and boiling anger across the country engulfing our political system, said Democratic pollster Jeff Horwitt of Heart Research Associates, which conducted this survey in partnership with the Republican firm Public Opinion Strategies. Four years later, with a very different political leader in place, that anger remains at the same level. The poll finds that 70% of Americans say they feel angry, quote, because of our political system that, that seems to only be working for the insiders with money and power, like those on Wall Street or in Washington, unquote. 43% say that statement describes them very well. So I want to kind of come out here real quick and just talk a little bit about that. So again, 70% of Americans, again, this is assuming that they are happy with where the economy is or happy with where their personal finances are. They feel angry. That was the specific wording inside of this article was that they feel angry about the political system because they feel like there are insiders with money and power that are basically boxing them out. That it's just basically only going well for Wall Street people or Washington people. I mean, that, that's an overwhelming, 70%, that's an overwhelming percent of Americans that are just basically angry. I, I mean, when I think about the people that are, are angry about money and power and those types of things, I think about Bernie Sanders and it, it's kind of crazy to me that 70% of the people out there in the United States think this way. 
the kind of this victim mentality that because they have, I must have not. I think that's kind of interesting, but I mean, there's so much to go into in this poll. And so I don't want to get into uh, a, a diatribe about Bernie Sanders and socialism and taking from people to give the other people and all the things they're in. But that, that's at the very least from the very jump, got to be very, very uh, unfortunate for you. And this same poll was taken about four years ago. It looks to be October of 2015, kind of that same feel angry about our political system type of thing. And it's only gotten worse since then, uh, but it's not like in, insanely worse, but it's gotten a little bit percentage points worse. Okay. But then there was another question that was asked and it was this, or you, you basically had to say how much you agreed with the statement that was given. And this one's basically talking about anxiety and uncertainty. It says, I feel anxious and uncertain because the economy still feels rocky and unpredictable. So I worry. So that has actually dropped quite a bit. That's dropped about six or seven points since the same time four years ago. And so people are still feeling good about where they're at in their own potential uh, you know, economic standpoint, but it still makes them overall feel a little bit crazy. And then the last one I want to go into here before we go back in the article is just satisfaction overall. And so the statement they wanted people to look at is, I feel satisfied that our political system is being shaken up and those who have been for too long have been too long are now being heard and put first. I think they left a word out here in this uh, NBC article, but it's essentially uh, they, they like that the things are being shaken up. And over 50% of the respondents this year in August of 2019 say they feel very satisfied with the fact that the political system is seeing a little bit of unrest. Uh, perhaps that'll uh, feed into some of the things we'll talk about later, but let's go back into the article here. That's almost exactly the percentage that agreed with the statement in October of 2015, when the presidential election was being upended by the anti-establishment message of then-candidate Donald Trump. Republicans report feeling somewhat less angry than they were almost four years ago, but that optimism has been offset by an uptick in anger from other groups typically more aligned with the Democratic Party. Surprise, surprise. In 2015, 39% of Republicans and 43% of Democrats said a feeling of anger at the political establishment defined them very well. Now it's 29% of Republicans and 54% of Democrats, a 10 point swing for each party in opposite directions. That's actually pretty astonishing. Those who were more likely to say feelings of anger described them very well since 2015 include women under 50, 48% up 10 points since 2015, African-Americans, 46% up five points and Hispanics, 49% up 11 points. The question that decides the 2020 election may no longer be, are you better or worse off than you were four years ago? But instead, are you as angry as you were four years ago, said Horwitt. And if that's the question, the answer is a deafening yes. So now we're going to kind of get into some of the more anxiety about the future in uh, basically our good economic times. Okay, back to the article. While 69% of Americans say they are satisfied with their overall financial situation today, a majority, 56%, also say they feel anxious and uncertain because the economy still feels rocky and unpredictable. That's down slightly from 61% in 2015. And just 27% of those surveyed say they're confident as their children's generation will be better off than them, down from 35% in August of 2017. That pessimism is reflected among all groups, regardless of age, race, income, and party identification. Majorities of adults who are under 35, that's 68%, seniors, 64%, poor and working class, 71%, high income, 64%, white, 67%, Black, 73%, and Hispanic, 64%, all say they are not confident, not confident that their children's generation will be better off. 
Among Republicans, 54% say they're not confident, while 64% of independents and 78% of Democrats agree. About half of Americans, 52%, say they do feel satisfied that the political system is being shaken up, although only one in five say that they feel very strongly about that. So let's talk about this section here. This is unbelievably surprising to me because we're in just kind of the latest iteration of generations that should have it better than our parents. Okay. I mean, if you just think about it a hundred years ago, people really didn't have refrigerators, right? I think I was listening to Jordan Peterson here recently. and He was just talking about abject poverty. Poverty has almost been eradicated entirely. And that's because of capitalism and the, and the spread of wealth and those types of things in places where they've tried to manufacture that via the government right? Places that have enacted a communist or socialistic government, they've actually stemmed the tide of that a little bit. It's actually gone considerably slower in some of those countries. But that is very interesting to me that the overwhelming majority of people, regardless of their background, their race, uh, their sex, or their their party affiliation, they feel like the, the kids are not going to be inheriting a better life and a better America than they have. And so there's a few ways that you can break this down. One of the ways is you can think about it is like, okay, well, um, things can't get much better. Now, I know people that are maybe on the political left or on the Democratic side of things, you know, it's always about progress, right? You hear about progressives and those types of things. So I would doubt that they would co-sign that type of a statement. But I wonder if people are looking around and going, you know what? We've reached the pinnacle of how convenient things can be. We can literally have food delivered to our door. We can literally fly somewhere else in the country. And then once we land, we can rent someone else's car to drive around the city. And if we don't want to do that, we don't have to mess with a taxi. We can just go to one of several different apps and get a driver that will pick us up and do all these different things. You know what? I can have a box of meat delivered to my door once a month that keeps me with the amount of chicken and beef and everything that I need, you know, a butcher box or something like that. Everything's so convenient. I can get on Amazon and literally order anything on the planet. I can order a car online by Carvana or something like that. It's basically like a vending machine for cars. I'm wondering if people think that, okay, we can probably continue to make things a little bit easier, but it's not going to be so much more than what we have now. Phones will get better. Televisions will get better. Computers will get better. All technology as a whole will get better. But but maybe we've reached that point where it's not that we're going to have diminishing returns, but it's just like, man, there's not much else that we can fix. That, I mean, maybe that's the way people are thinking, because if I would have been asked this, I would have said, you know, what? I think our kids are going to have it better just because of the trajectory of history. It would make sense. Now, if there's political unrest, which I'm sure we'll get into here in a little bit, perhaps not. But at the very least, it's going to be a more complicated lifestyle for our children, but they're going to have all these tools that help them to focus on some of the larger issues. So again, I thought that that was very pessimistic and very, uh, very surprising when I was looking at the results. But let's go ahead and go back into the article here, and we're going to talk about unease about change. That's the next section. Americans also express some ambivalence about changes in American society and the country becoming more diverse and tolerant of different lifestyles, languages, cultures, and races. call those changes a step forward, while 14% call them a step backward. The remainder, 43%, say those changes are some of both. 61% of Republicans and 44% of independents and 27% of Democrats express those mixed feelings. I think it's a step forward in a way that people are becoming more aware of the differences between them. But I think it's a step back when you bend over so much and become politically correct that you take away a person's right to think or say how they feel said one suburban man from Hawaii who supported Trump in 2016. 
Immigration has brought richness and a better quality of life to our people, but I think that it is often difficult for all of us to understand one another and become a community as new people come into society, said a female Clinton voter from New York. It's a difficult time and sometimes fraught process that sometimes takes time. That poll also offers a glum view of race relations. Six in ten describe either a lot or some tension between people of different races in their state. The same share, 60%, say that race relations in the United States are bad, although that's down from 70% in 2017 and a high of 74% in the summer of 2016. And more than a half, 56%, say that race relations have gotten worse since Trump became president. Another 33% say race relations have stayed the same, while 10% say that they have improved. So uh, let's kind of come out and talk a little bit about that. There were, there were a couple of different things there. The first was just basically the mixed feelings that people are having with the changing demographics of the United States. So what people on the right would say is, you know, this is just basically how, how it goes. Uh, perhaps that's, you know, you have a lot of people that were not forcing to assimilate to some sort of an amalgamation of American culture. Then you will have people on the political left that'll just say anyone that says something like that is racist because how dare you say that somebody should speak the given language of this country or something like that. So you have people kind of fighting from both sides, but I think it is a fair assessment whenever about 20 uh, or what I forgot what it said right in here, but a good percentage of people are a little bit afraid of the fact that things are changing and that they're not changing with any particular purpose or direction. Because I don't think people are nearly as bothered by change as they are bothered by change that will lead to something more negative. And so I've seen a lot of people talk about how uh, people that are immigrating here are not being encouraged even. I'm not saying forced, but they're not even being encouraged to learn how to speak English which that is the most popular language in this country. It's a, it's the official language of our country is English. That doesn't mean that you can't speak other languages. Obviously, the more languages you speak, the better. But if we don't have a common way to communicate, it does make things different. And it does cause people to kind of go into their separate communities and not basically become a part of the community writ large. And so I think those are things that are a little bit interesting. So it's, it's interesting to hear that people are responding honestly, that there are some concerns about that. And then you get into race relations, something that we haven't talked a lot about here on this podcast, not for any particular reason, but it's not that surprising that people think that there are race problems in the United States. But the thing that I feel like is interesting here is kind of this unspoken undertone, which is that people think that race relations can be fixed in the United States. And I think the biggest piece of evidence against that is Okay, um, we had an African-American or a part African-American president for eight years in Barack Obama and people's attitudes on race relations actually devolved. They, they, they got worse. They, they felt that America was a more racist place after eight years of Obama presidency. So you have to ask yourself, like, how is that possible? How could that possibly happen that we have this this great glowing man come into the White House, this great unifier, or so we were told, and yet people have a more sour impression of race relations? Because I think it's easy that uh, for a lot of people to kind of pick on Donald Trump because he's been so clunky in some of his language, especially with people that are aligned with the alt-right or white supremacy or, or those types of things. But he has very definitively um, said that he is against those people. He's against those ideologies. But the, the problem that I think that we're having is we're not getting a fair look at race relations when we look anywhere outside of our or just our immediate community, okay? So I feel like for Edmond, Oklahoma, I can give you a pretty good idea of how race relations are for Edmond, Oklahoma City. 
I feel like I can do a pretty good job of that. I feel like I've got enough information. I've lived here long enough. I've interacted with enough different people where I can kind of give you a sense of that. But what I can't give you a sense of is what race relations are in a different community. And I can kind of extend that out for kind of where my wife's family's from in South South Central Oklahoma, where my family's from in Southwest Oklahoma. I can kind of like parse that out and, and give you some details. But when we're looking at the country as a whole and we're trying to figure out what race relations look like, it's difficult to do so. And so we rely on the the media to do that for us or Twitter to do that for us, which is a dangerous proposition. I don't know if y'all saw this. Of course, this went under the radar in just about every single news outlet that you might think of. But it was this memo that was leaked from somebody over at the New York Times that basically admitted that for the entire first two years of the Donald Trump presidency, the entire staff, essentially, of the New York Times, of the news staff, was basically fully sold out to the Trump-Russia conspiracy. Like, they give all their money and all their attention and all their time to that. And this memo said that after it basically came out that the Trump-Russia stuff was a farce, it was basically made up, there was no there there, they've completely shifted their tactic for 2020, again, because they would like to have a Democrat elected, to the Trump being a racist narrative. And so it's interesting, a lot of the pieces that are coming out of the New York Times today are, are, you know, just in general today, that they're more race-based type things. Anytime Trump says something that can even be misconstrued as racist or ethnocentric or something like that, they jump all over it. And again, this is not me defending Donald Trump. I mean, he said some ridiculous things and he probably believes way more ridiculous things than he even admits out loud. But at the same time, it's like, is it any surprise that people think race relations are worse when we have a gigantic majority of the, the mainstream media trying to convince us that our president sitting in the White House is himself a white supremacist? Not just racist, as if there was something worse than being a racist, but a white supremacist. Someone that is really hoping that the white race can prevail over all of the races. Which, again, if he's a white supremacist, he's one of the worst white supremacists potentially out there because of the the positives that are going on in the non-white communities in the United States right now. Uh, Black and Hispanic unemployment rates are at the lowest they've ever been in this country. There's a lot of statistics around that that would make it a little bit weird for somebody that was so vehemently opposed to people that weren't white to, to have that level of success. That would, that would be really, really interesting. But this is going to be one thing that I want us to continue to look at because uh, I think the odds are, are pretty good that Donald Trump is not reelected next year. Um, I, I mean, again, I mean, the Democrats on the other side right now, it, it's like basically a, a a bunch of clowns competing for who can have the most ridiculous face paint and those types of things. I mean, it's absolutely insane. Some of the things that they're saying and that they're doing, but I think that Donald Trump is not doing what he needs to do in order to win some of those key purple States that will allow him to retain the presidency. And I don't know that Democrats are going to let there be another problem like they had last time where they have such an unpalatable candidate as Hillary Clinton, that most people will actually just sit at home and not go out and vote. Um, but regardless of who's in the White House next, this is a point I'm trying to make. Whether it's Donald Trump leaving office in you know five years or leaving office next year or whatever the thing might be, this is going to be an interesting thing to kind of keep an eye on is where statistics about race relations go. Because if Kamala Harris uh, goes into office, the first female and, and another black president goes into office, will things change? Uh, what about Elizabeth Warren? What about the octogenarian socialist <laughs> Bernie Sanders? What about Joe Biden, who is who is loved by black people, especially in the South? You know, what what does that look like when we look at kind of the 
next wave of Republican candidates. I mean, are we going to have a Nikki Haley uh, who is, you know, a non-white uh, American woman? Are we going to have like a Din Crenshaw, a very typical all-American type guy? Is it going to be Rubio coming back up who's got the Cuban heritage? Like, what's it going to look like? And do we all look at race relations as if it's going to improve? Again, I think it's a dubious proposition for us to assume that race relations will eventually get to the point where we won't have that anymore. Um, there was a Joe Rogan podcast episode a while back. I can't even remember who he was uh, talking to, but he was basically like, man, I just can't wait until someday down the road when we don't have this anymore. We don't have that anymore. We don't have racism anymore. Blah, blah. And he just kind of threw that in there as like a throwaway statement, which was unbelievable to me that he said something so silly, but he is honestly a progressive at his core. And he thinks that at some point we are actually going to not have racism anymore. And this is kind of par for the course for somebody that thinks that we're uh, just highly evolved, hairless apes. You know, he's the type of guy that thinks that, you know, we can evolve. We can evolve to where everyone is happy, to where everyone is satisfied, to where everyone has everything that they need because we're just highly evolved monkeys and monkeys just need more shiny things. And if we can get shiny things and keep people from being mean to us, we should be fine. So this will be something to keep an eye on, but let's go ahead and get back into the meat of this. And this is going to be the big part of what we're talking about today with, which is the shifting values. So the shifting values of Americans. And so this section here, I just want to go, go ahead and kind of describe to you because this is what most people were talking about whenever they were looking at this poll data They they were looking at this and they wanted to kind of give us an idea of what things would look like. So I'm going to go and describe to you, and it's in two different categories. So you have millennials and Gen Z in one category. And so that's people that are between the age of 18 and 38 right now. And then you've got boomers and the silent generation. So those are the people that are ages, you know, 55 to 91. Okay. So I'll just basically sum it up as, you know, millennials, Gen Z and boomers. Okay. So we're going to be looking at a bunch of different categories and what those uh, groups think about when it comes to saying these subjects are very important. So the first one is patriotism. So only about 40% of millennials and Gen Z think that patriotism is very important, whereas almost 80% of boomers think that patriotism is important. Okay. Belief in God, millennials and Gen Z, it's about 30% believe that it's very important. Whereas with boomers, it's more like 70%. Having children, millennials and Gen Z, it's about 35%. Whereas for boomers, it's more like 55%. In terms of hard work, millennials and Gen Z and boomers alike are kind of in that 80 to 90 range of thinking that hard work is very important. Financial security, it's almost exactly the same for millennials, Gen Z and boomers that they're around that 80% mark. In terms of tolerance for others, it's essentially the same, just over the 80% mark for all groups. And then self-fulfillment, you have boomers actually slightly below that. They're about 55% think it's very important, whereas around 65 or 70% of millennials and Gen Z think it's very important. Okay. Now I know that's a lot of information there, but I want to go ahead and do that same exact lineup with Democrats and Republicans. And this is where it gets really interesting because in the first three categories, patriotism, belief in God and having children, we have almost the same breakdown as we did with millennials, Gen Z, and then the boomers as with Democrats and Republicans. So with patriotism, just over 40% of Democrats think that patriotism is very important, whereas over 80% of Republicans think it's very important. Belief in God, less than 40% of Democrats think that's important, whereas 70% of Republicans think it's important. Having children, about 35%. Of Democrats think that that's important, whereas about 55% of Republicans think that that's an important thing. And then with hard work, 
They're both pretty high up there. Democrats are a little bit lower than Republicans on that. Financial security is almost the same. Tolerance for others, uh, about 70% of Republicans think that's important, where almost you know 95% of Democrats think that is important. It's kind of like their big thing is you have to be tolerant, even if you have to be intolerant to get there. And self-fulfillment was about the same, you know, 60 to 70% for both groups. So there's a lot to talk about there. Um, and there's a lot kind of in the margin for error. But what I want to go ahead and do is I would just want to read these last few sentences of the article, and then we'll start breaking breaking down this last piece, which is really the biggest piece here. So nearly nine in 10 Americans, that's 89% identify hard work as very important value, even higher than the 83% who said the same thing in the 1998 NBC Wall Street Journal poll. But those who say that patriotism is very important slid from 70% two decades ago to 61% now. The share citing religion decreased even more from 62% in 1998 to 48% now. Those changes come amid a stark generational divide over which values are seen as most important. Among those who are either millennials or Generation Z, ages 18 to 38, only 42% rate patriotism as a very important value, while 79% of those over 55 say the same. Just 30% of the younger groups cite religion or belief in God as very important, while 67% of the older group does. And just 32% of those under the age of 38, 38 years old call having children very important, while 54% of those over 55 agree. There is an emerging America where issues like children, religion, and patriotism are far less important, said Republican pollster Bill Mc... Whoa, whoa, what's that name? McIntruff. All right, Bill McIntruff. So hopefully that's the last time I have to say that of the public opinion strategies. And in America, it's the emerging generation that calls the shots about where the country's headed. So... The thing about this is there's a lot to discuss here, but I thought that Albert Moeller did a great job on his podcast. So if you're not listening to the Albert Moeller podcast, it's uh, podcast. It's called The Briefing with Albert Moeller. So it's a Christian news and events, or it's news and events from a Christian worldview. So that's kind of the overall thing. It's Monday through Friday. Albert Moeller is a big time Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist Convention guy. And, you know, he basically just releases episodes with the, the date and time. And so if you go back to his Tuesday, August 27th of 2019, episode. He basically talks a lot about this in here, but his overall summary is the one that I agree with. It's that basically the next generation of Americans is less patriotic, less religious, and we will be less populated. So the less patriotic and less religious thing I think is important, but I wanted to kind of focus a little bit on the less populated part. So there's a lot of information that's been released here recently, and it's kind of gone on deaf ears about the birth rate in the United States. And so there's another article I found on NBC News that's a short one that I want to read to you that kind of gives you an idea of of what this could potentially mean for us. Okay, so the name of the article is birth rate in the U.S. falls to lowest level in 32 years, CDC says. So let me go and read this article to you here and we'll get back into breaking down the poll. The number of babies born in the U.S. in 2018 fell to the lowest level in 32 years, according to a government report released Wednesday. The numbers are part of a decades-long trend towards fewer and fewer babies being born each year, which means we're getting further away from the possibility of having enough children to replace ourselves, according to the report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The majority finding is that the fertility rates are reaching record lows, said the report's lead author, Brady Hamilton, a statistician and demographer at the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics. There have been record lows in the teenage birth rate, which fell 7% compared to 2017. Hamilton and his colleagues found that the total number of births in 2018 at 3,788,235 was down 2% from 2017. The general fertility rate for 2018 was 59 births per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44, another record low for the U.S. 
For perspective, it's lower than in the years after the Great Depression. In 1936, for example, the general fertility rate was 75.6. More telling, perhaps, is the drop in the total fertility rate, which also fell 2% compared to the 2017 figures, to 1,728 births per 1,000 women of childbearing age. For the nation's population to reproduce itself at current numbers and remain stable, the total fertility rate would need to be at least 2,100 births per 1,000 women. So, essentially, for the population to remain stable, each woman needs to have at least two babies. At 2,000, there would be enough children to replace fathers and mothers. The extra 100 is to account for deaths. Now we're going to talk a little bit about team births at record low. The CDC research doesn't explain why birth rates are declining, Hamilton says. There was some good news in the new report. Fewer babies are being born to teens. In fact, these are record lows for teenage birth rates, Hamilton said. This year's rate is 7% lower than in 2017. Overall, the report finds that younger women are having fewer babies, with the only demographic seeing an increase in birth rates as women in their late 30s and early 40s. The pattern seen in the U.S. echoes what's been happening in many developed countries, said Dr. John W. Rowe, a professor at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. For comparison, the total fertility rate in Europe is 1.58. In Southern Europe, meaning Spain and Italy, it's 1.3, and in Japan, it's 1.44, Rowe said, so it's not unprecedented. There are some serious implications that could result from the declining birth rates, Rose said. Long term, it means that we're going to have an increasing proportion of older people, he said. All the projections about what the percent of the population will be elderly in 5, 10, 20 years from now were made with the assumption that the birth rate would be stable. The lowered birth rate will have significant impact on the labor force, Rose said. Now we're going to talk about delaying marriage and childbirth. Japan, in particular, is having issues related to declining birth rates because of its immigration policies, Rowe said. They don't have an adequate workforce to take care of the very large elderly population, he explained. It's a real challenge for them. Studies have shown that women are delaying both marriage and childbirth, said Donna Strobino, professor and chair of education, population, family, and reproductive health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We're clearly in the throes of a major societal change with regard to women getting married and choosing to have children, she said. There's no question that part of the explanation for that is economic. It's very expensive to raise children these days, and in part, it's social. All the changes in women's roles. Still, there are hints that the new report, uh, hints in the new report that the current trend could be at least partially reverse itself. Or let me just do that whole sentence again. Still, there are hints in the new report that the current trend could at least partially reverse itself, said Strabino. It's perhaps not as gloom and doom as some think it is, Strabino said. She points to an increase in the number of babies being born to women in their late 30s and early 40s, which she sees as a possible sign that the fertility rate could recover eventually. It's possible that women who have been postponing pregnancy may have the babies they were planning to have, and that could reverse the trend. Maybe, says Dr. Helen Kim, but maybe not. As a fertility specialist, I worry that delaying childbearing will result in more fertility problems, said Kim, an associate professor at Northwestern University of Feinberg School of Medicine. Fertility, particularly women's fertility, declines with age. I've seen numerous couples who have waited too long, said Kim. Some have been married for more than 10 years before they think about having kids. There have been many advances in fertility treatment, but there is still no treatment for reproductive aging. And so uh, those are kind of the two articles I wanted to go through, but now I want to kind of get into kind of breaking that down because I feel like that article did a really good job of giving you an idea of where we're going because, again, I agree with Albert Moeller that the next generation, at, at the very least the next generation, but certainly subsequent generations, they seem like they're going to be less patriotic, less religious, and that we are going to have tro- uh, trouble with population. 
Okay. And the thing about it is when you look at this and you start looking at deeper details within a poll like this is you see people that are parents. Okay. Parents tend to be more patriotic, more religious, more conservative and want to procreate. I mean, duh, I mean, they're, they're parents, but the huge thing, and, and of all the things that we've talked about so far, perhaps the big takeaway should be this. It's that parents, people that have children, people that have procreated, they are deeply invested in the health of society moving forward, deeply invested. These are people that want to make sure that the next generation is better off than they were. And so we've seen this with every successive generation looking backwards, that they've always had kind of had that forward thinking approach. But we live in an era now where, you know, for some people, it seems absolutely insane that you would even want to be a parent. I know several couples that don't want children. They're the same age as my wife and I. And then just the thought of having children, they're just like, no, why would I want to do that? Like we make what we make right now. I couldn't imagine spending, you know, what it costs to get a kid from the age of born to the age of 18 without paying for a car, without paying for college funding, without paying for, you know, K through 12 private school. It's about $300,000 per kid. Like, and I get it. So they're like, what, you want me to have two or three of those? And we spend a million dollars just to raise a human being, to feed them and clothe them and get them into the activities that they want to be into. So it's really interesting. And so whenever I kind of pull myself out from this a little bit, I want to look at what's to blame. Okay. So, so what would be to blame for these poll numbers that we saw? And so there's a few different things that, that I looked at. The first thing I think is the easy one, which is the political left. Okay. People that are on the political left, they are pushing society in a certain direction and the subsequent generations are not becoming more conservative. They're becoming more progressive and progressive progressivism leans more leftward. Okay. And so the thing about it that, that you can say that this is a really easy one is because can you name any major politician on the right that doesn't want us to be more patriotic or more religious or to have kids or those types of things? Those aren't really things that you, you hear from people that are on the political right. Uh, certainly not the first two. I mean, you could not survive in this country as a red candidate and say that you don't want us to be patriotic, to say that this country is awful, that, that we're racist, that we're horrible, that you know we need, need to be more like this country or that country or any of those types of things. The interesting thing about people on the other side that are saying those exact things, they don't want to move. Right? They, they don't want to go to the Nordic countries or to Canada or to any of these other places in the world where we basically, according to them, it's a little bit closer to utopia. They don't want to leave. They want to stay here, but they just want to be up in arms and complain about it. But this other thing about kind of the political left is just this overall hatred of humans. And again, I'm making a, I want to make a distinction between leftist and liberal because I think those are two different things. I'm talking about people that are leftist, people that are on the political left. These people hate humans. And, and if you don't take me seriously on that, think about their options in terms of what they say with abortion. They don't talk about what's going on in the womb as someone that has rights, as a human being that has rights as a human. And you have other leftists that believe even after the baby has been born, if after a botched abortion, that that baby should be left there to die. We literally have leftist politicians that have been on video saying that exact thing. So I think the political left has some blame to share in this in terms of moving us in certain directions. But the other thing I want to look at is kind of in turn with the political left, and that's social or cultural or entertainment elites, right? So think Hollywood elites or or New York elites. And these people, the big thing about them is they love to be able to control humans. 
right? Because we can control people if we control culture. Because if we make a good enough movie, we can get a whole bunch of people to spend money and go and look at the same screen. That's control. But also, every political season, you can see these ads start to pop up with these recognizable faces from your favorite movies, basically telling you, don't vote for the red guy, vote for the blue guy, or something like that. You, you see something like that. They want to be able to control you. And when they can't control you, they freak out. Yet all these people that are like, I'm going to move out of the country if Trump's elected. Literally, none of them have moved out of the country. But it's because they thought, oh my gosh, you, the the end user, the end voter, we're going to maybe be like, oh my gosh, Madonna is is going to like basically, re, you know, renounce her citizenship, or or you know, Whoopi Goldberg's going to move. Like, what are we going to do if Whoopi moves? Like, it's it's that it's nonsense like that. But again, it's just more about control. But then you also get these ideas that start to spread that start in kind of the the social or cultural elitist type groups. So you've heard a lot of people moving towards global warming, um, basically being the reason for for them not wanting to have children. You saw, I think it was uh, uh, one of the princes over in England. I can't remember him. Him and his wife, they just had their their first baby. And they said at maximum, they're going to have two babies. And when asked why, they were like, well, because of climate change. Well, which again... It used to be called global warming until it was seen that most of the warming models that were put out there were absolutely way off when it came to what they were trying to predict. So now it's climate change as if that's something that can be easily defined. And so these individuals, they're not going to have babies because of climate change. And then so you have these dum-dums that are like, oh my gosh, I recognize that person from television or from tabloid covers. You know, I'm going to not have children either, which probably isn't the worst idea for someone like that. But I'm just, I'm just saying like, it's one of those deals that you get these people that think in this way. They keep putting out entertainment in this way and it's going to keep pushing the way forward. I mean, guys, literally right before I got onto this podcast, literally right before a group of guys, they, um, you know, he sent out an email to me, but it was this Arthur episode. I don't know if y'all remember the, the show Arthur, but they, they had an episode here in the last season where there was a same-sex wedding where um, basically Arthur's teacher married his partner. Um, and the thing was, is he was sending the text to this group because he's like, they literally just played this episode of Arthur for my kindergartners. He's got a kid that just went into kindergarten like a week ago. And he's like, yeah, I'm about to like send an email off to them. And it's like, dude, an email's not going to do it. Are you kidding me? Like in the public school system, even in a conservative state like Oklahoma, you're going to have stuff like that that come out that are going to try to normalize lifestyles that you think are immoral. And for us as Christians, we obviously think that the homosexual lifestyle is an immoral thing. Jesus did talk about homosexuality being wrong, being immoral, being sinful. But again, when you look through the lens of social, cultural, and entertainment elites, they don't really kind of go through that. Another thing I was thinking about in terms of how these stats kind of got to where they were is just the connectedness culture. So we live in one of these these cultures where we're constantly connected. We are constantly on social media. We're constantly talking to people. I mean, you'll even see, uh, people like to make fun of it, but you'll see Gen Zers. They'll be all sitting in a room together texting. And sometimes they're texting each other as opposed to just looking to their right and being like, hey, uh, what's up? Uh, you want to hear a joke? Like they're, they're texting each other. But it's this, they, it's this feeling of connectedness, even though they're not. So I think that has a little bit to do with how people are looking at the future and how things just really aren't that important anymore. And the connectedness culture kind of gives off to a me culture, right? We're this unbelievable narcissism that we're so focused on us. We're focused on me and the things that we're doing. And if you're too focused on you, you're not going to be very patriotic because in order to be patriotic towards your country, that requires a little bit of sacrifice. 
You're certainly not going to be more religious because especially if you come from the Judeo-Christian framework and you follow um, you know, Christianity or any of those types of things, it's not really a you-centric thing unless you go to Joel Osteen's church or Stephen Furtick's church or Carl Lentz's church or something like that. And then you're the sinner and you're the superstar and you're the hero, right? But at the same time, that's that's what we get with this me culture. When when you're constantly connected, when you know your worth for that day is uh, tied to how many likes you get on an Instagram post or how many people respond on a Facebook, uh, you know it's it's one of those things that it's it's interesting for us, but it leads to that for us, and all of those things lead to kind of this stuff culture as well, that there's always this stuff that we need to attain. And so it's again, going to be really hard for us to be focused on being patriotic on being religious or focusing on procreating. And, and, you know, obviously the selflessness of being a parent, if we're constantly worried about getting stuff. And so that's one thing you see with trends around people that are my age is people will, you know, wait to get married because, you know, I haven't established myself yet. I haven't gotten that second or third promotion. I'm not making six figures yet. I'm not doing whatever the thing might be. And, you know, I'll get married. I'll start looking when I can get all that stuff settled. And then if it takes them until they're 35 to get that settled, then they start looking for a mate. Uh, Maybe they're kind of looking around. There's not as many people in their age range as they thought would be there by the time they got everything set. And then you start thinking about, well, when are we going to be able to have children? It all kind of gets, gets thrown off a little bit. Like it just kind of gets thrown out of whack. And I don't think people really enjoy that very much, nor should they really look at enjoying that very much. And kind of the, the other thing I want to talk about, that's a little bit of a divergence. And we've talked about this quite a bit lately here on this podcast, but it's kind of the, the more limited influence that fathers are having. I think that has a role to play here because obviously there are less fathers living in the home and less fathers that have a direct impact on their children's lives than any other time in America, in American history. And, you know, a lot of kids go to bed without dad in the house. And so you got to think, um, you know, when, when I think about my dad and I think about the dads of some of my friends that I grew up with, these were incredibly patriotic and religious men that obviously had families. And so they wanted to be able to conserve that for their children. They, they wanted to teach their children patriotism, teach them about being a good Christian and show them the value of being a good dad so that they could be one someday, right? But since we have more of a limited influence from fathers, since we don't have, you know, rites of passage that are helping these boys understand why they should go and uh, do things like being patriotic and religious and having children and what it means to be the man that can do all those things, I think that that has something to blame. I think there is some blame to be used there. And so um, the the way that I want to kind of bring this all up and culminate it is I the, the thing that I've thought about since I've started reading this Reachers is I'm wondering if this is America getting what she deserves. Like, I wonder if these trends and things that are going in this direction, and, and I'm not exactly uh, bullish on the fact that they're going to be able to change that. I, I wonder if we deserve it. And I'm reminded of the John Adams quote that's obviously very popular and a lot of people have used, but it's that our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And the thing about it is, is we're trying to have the benefits of a Judeo-Christian framework without having God, the Judeo-Christian God. Like we want to have all of the benefits of a moral society while at the same time saying that morality is relative, that it can't be brought into one specific area or one specific worldview. It's kind of an amalgamation of all these different worldviews. And so I know this was a little bit more of an ethereal look at this poll, but I think there are some things for us to be really, really concerned about. 
because typically in something like this, even though I'm more pessimistic, I do kind of look for that, that positive thing. Like well, what's positive, but to be honest with you, the only positive here is that Americans still think hard work is a good thing that, you know, even 20 years down the road, even with, you know, people talking about how millennials are lazy and Gen Z is going to be worse and blah, 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 and all that. We still value hard work almost more than anything that is as American DNA, like as, as you can possibly get is we're going to work hard and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. So that's the one positive, but all the rest of these things are incredibly, incredibly concerning. Because I don't want to live in an America that's not very patriotic. I don't want to live in an America that's only patriotic when the Olympics come up, right? Which is what you see with a lot of other countries. They're waving the flag and they're being proud and all that. And then they're burning them the next week. It's just, it's a weird, it's a weird thing when you look around the world. And obviously we're going to have exacerbated problems the less religious this society becomes. Because religion in and of itself helps control. It helps control people. It controls their actions. It controls their vices. It's not a foolproof thing for anybody or any group of bodies, right? But it's certainly better. And obviously, I have some some very big misgivings about the progressivist mindset in terms of where things are going, because a conservative mindset much more aligns with a biblical mindset, being able to conserve things in a way that it was meant to be here 2,000 years later after Jesus was teaching the way that he was teaching. And so I didn't want this podcast to turn into an alarmist podcast, but I didn't know if any of you had seen that research. I wanted to make sure I shared it with you so that you can think through that as well. All right, guys, let's do a quick resilience boost before we let you out of here. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today, I'm going to kind of give you a rundown of the things that we've looked at. So I'm going to give you a link to the article, which is a deep and boiling anger. NBC Wall Street Journal poll finds a pessimistic America despite current economic satisfaction. And then the other one that I read on here was the birth rate in U.S. falls to lowest level in 32 years. CDC says, but then also, I provided the uh, link to the episode for the briefing with Albert Moeller from Tuesday, August 27th of 2019. So it's at the albertmoeller.com website. But basically, guys, anywhere where you get your podcast, you can go ahead and get that podcast. And I could not suggest it more to you. So please, please start listening to that. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, this is how the podcast will continue to grow. So please take the time to leave us that five-star review and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2019 and for all of 2020. So if you want me to come speak at your men's event, at your conference, at your church, at your team, just let me know. Info at undaunted.life. Again, that's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.